We are glad you're here with us this morning. It's been a, uh, a great time over the last five weeks as we've been in the book called Not a Fan. Um, I'm not sure how many of you guys have been reading it, but um, if you have been, uh, I hope that it's, it's working on you like it worked on me and is still working on me. And as I go through and we do the, uh, the sermon set here, I, w- I would like to do a little bit of review because there's some of you here who are here for the first time and haven't had a chance to hear about the book and, and some of the things we've talked about. And there's others of you because of Balloon Fiesta or State Fair or all the different things that take place in September and October that have missed something. So I want to I catch us up on where we're at and, and get started. Our, our first, first thing that I, I, I've noticed from this book from the very beginning is it really challenged me in my stance and where I am with Jesus. And it's constantly causing me to question myself in that area and how I am uh, accomplishing my relationship with him and, and where I am in that. And the very first week that we talked about was called fan or follower. And when we talked about fan or follower, what we did is we, we came up with three words, and it was define the relationship. Define the relationship. And when we take time to sit back and think about our relationship with Christ, where is your relationship at with him? If we were in a dating relationship, you would take time to figure out where you were in that relationship and where that relationship was going. Sometimes we just want to keep it casual, and other times we want to move forward. And in our relationship with Christ, it's the same thing. Do we want to keep it casual and stay right where we're at, or do we want to move forward and get become more serious and more intimate with Him? The second thing we um, wanted to look at, and the second week we t- took a time to look at, was called the open invitation. We talked about how Jesus died for everyone and for anyone. And when that means anyone, it actually means anyone. There's no line that is drawn in the sand to say you have to be this specific thing in order to be chosen by Jesus to be able to, that he died for you. And anyone, any one of those people is welcome to follow him. And it doesn't matter your past, only your future matters. The third place we look at was in the third week was called Choose Intimacy and how we have to be open and vulnerable with Christ. Because we can be closed off if we want to. We can try and compartmentalize Christ if we want to. We can make Christ our our Sunday worship, but on Monday, we go back to our regular lives. And that's wrong. And we all know it's wrong, but we do it anyway for whatever reason. The fourth week, last week, we talked about how we've made the cross comfortable. And we have this theology. And in case you don't know what theology is, theo is God and ology is study. So the study of God, we have thought about God and have this study of God and this belief in God that it's okay for us to be comfortable as Christians because that's what Christianity is. But really, in all reality, it's not that way. God called us to take up our cross. That's what we've been talking about in this book the whole time. Luke 9.23 says, take up your cross and follow me. And that's not some fluff statement, not some random thing that is mentioned. What he says is, is we have to take up our cross, this instrument of suffering and shame and death, and carry it. Christianity is not easy. Even though last week we talked about all the things we like about making life easy and how every invention that's out there makes life easy. And we're hoping that that would happen for this, but unfortunately, that's not the road that Christ has called us to walk, the easy road. And I asked you last week, will you choose it? Will you choose to make the cross comfortable or will you choose it for what it really is? That brings us to today, and today's topic is called More Than Rules. More Than Rules. As we 
start to think about that, let's, uh, let's just open up in prayer. God, we love you so much, and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that, that Lord, we don't, we don't have to follow rules, but, Lord, we have to follow Christ. And, Lord, there's such a, a distraction in our minds that brings it to the point where we don't know the difference between the two. Lord, help us this morning make that distinction between Christ and rules and grace and rules. Pray it in your name. Amen. You know, we, we really do think that, that Christianity is based on rules. Maybe you've grown up in a church that was all about rules. Maybe you grew up in a household that was all about rules when it came to Christianity, the rules you had to follow while you were at church. Maybe um, we've gotten to the point where we think that it's because we were born in America or we were born into a certain social economic status or the fact that, that uh, you know, our parents were Christians, that that makes us Christians and it's about the rules that we follow. But that's not it at all. As a matter of fact, our salvation is based completely and totally on the fact that God poured out his grace on us. It was a gift in the form of Jesus. In response to that gift, we don't do things for God out of obligation, but instead we do things out of a response for, in love. It's because we love God and that's it. Now, you've probably been with us, or if you have been with us, we went through the book of Ephesians before we got into this not a fan, and that's really what we talked about with that. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith, not of our works. Our works are in response to what God has done for us ahead of time. The whole book of Ephesians was that way. The first three chapters was God's love for us. The last three chapters was our response because of that love. And we have to remember that. I don't know how many of you guys struggle with it, though. I think of all the things in the Bible, God's grace is probably the thing I struggle with the most. I mean, you think about some of the things that he did, that he created the earth in six days and created all the things that went with it. He created the heavens and the earth and and he created man out of the dust, and he created a woman out of a man's rib, I, I can understand that. I can understand that that's God, and, and he can do that, and I can't. That's not a difficult thing for me to understand. The fact that Jesus was God, that he walked the earth as a man, that he died in my place because of the sins that I had, and he was punished on the cross for those sins and then rose again, I don't understand exactly why that happens, but I do understand how it happened. That I can wrap my mind around. It's this thing about grace that I don't understand. The fact that I was so despicable in God's sight, and yet he sent his one and only son to die for me, that's where I have a hard time with it all. And some people might say, well, what do you mean despicable? I mean, I'm really not that bad of a person. And I'd like to agree with you on that if you're comparing yourself to somebody else. But if you're comparing yourself to the standard, which is Jesus Christ, we are that bad. Yet Christ still died for us. Honestly, if we look at what the Bible has to say about us, if we look at what the Bible has to say about us, the real honest picture, what the Bible has to say about us, apart from Christ, you'll see how bad we really are. Let me just read for you a few things about what the Bible has to say. Genesis chapter 6 says, I'm one who does evil continually. Proverbs 20 says, I'm impure. Ecclesiastes 7 says, not righteous or good. 
Ecclesiastes 9 says, I'm full of evil and madness. Psalm 58 says, I'm wicked and estranged. Isaiah 53 says, I've gone my own way. Isaiah 65 says, I'm rebellious. John 3 says, I'm among those who have loved darkness. John 8 and Romans 6 say, I'm a slave to sin. John 8 says, I'm a child of the devil. Acts 7, unrighteous, not understanding, not seeking God, a stiff-necked resistor to the Holy Spirit. Romans 2 says, turned aside, worthless, not doing good, and having an unrepentant heart. Romans 3, without fear of God. Romans 8, hostile to God. 1 Corinthians 2, spiritually foolish. Ephesians 2, spiritually dead among the children of wrath. Philippians 3, darkened, alienated, marked by ignorance, hardened of heart, callousness, which includes perversion, greed, impurity, and every sort, living among the enemies of the cross of Christ. Colossians 2 says, I'm dead. Titus 1 says, I'm defiled and unbelieving. And 1 John 5 says, I'm under the power of the evil one. Does that make you sound good? Apart from Christ, we aren't good. Apart from Christ, even though we think we're good, we're not. This is what God has to say about us. It's incredibly honest. You know, it's funny that when we see the Bible and we read the Bible, some people say, well, the Bible's made up. Why would you make something up that would be such a distraction or such a a deterrent or anything like that about saying that you're an evil person? Because nobody wants to be considered evil. The Bible is completely true. And it talks to us in this way and is brutally honest. And it's got a brutally honest assessment of who I am apart from Jesus. You know, honestly, I'm no longer surprised that I'm a sinner, but what does surprise me is how God responds to me and continues to respond to me. And I've got to be honest with you, I don't think I'm alone in this. I don't disbelieve God's grace, but there's many, many times that I live as if it doesn't exist. And I think maybe we all kind of fall into that same boat. For whatever reason, we live as if these, this grace doesn't exist, and that's where these rules come in. We get caught up in rules. And it's more than rules that we're going to be talking about today. But I'll to ask you this question. How many churches and how many church people do you know that are all about the rules? How many churches and how many church people do you know that are all about the rules? Maybe you were in a house or a church that was all about the rules. And as you look back on that, you can see what we're going to be talking about today. You walked into a church maybe with a smile on your face, five minutes after getting a fight in the car on the way there, and you pulled in the church parking lot, and everybody went, just like that. It's a quick smile. And you know it, because, and you laugh, because that's exactly what it was. It was like, mom and dad were arguing with you, telling you to be quiet, this is what you're going to have to do, and as soon as you pull the, stop it. All right. Everybody got out of the car, and everybody's happy and smiling. And then you got back into the car, and the fight resumed as soon as church was over. And why is that? Because you're in a church that's all about rules and everybody has it all together at church, right? I mean, you can't walk into a church and have problems, can you? Can you? Yes, you can, but did we? No. Everybody had it all together. When I was younger, I thought everybody had it all together. I thought my family was the only one that was screwed up because everybody else seemed perfectly happy at church. I thought the pastor was the most godly man and that his family was perfect. Becoming a pastor, I understand that's not the case. Or maybe I'm the only one, I don't know. But the thing is, the thing is, is I began to understand, I began to realize that people are people. That we fail. And that I fail. I'm not too naive to think that as I look through here, there's people that are struggling. 
How many of us have our struggles out there on the table? I don't know. Many of us are hiding them. I'm not too naive to think that there's somebody in here struggling with an eating disorder. I'm not too naive to think that there's somebody in here struggling with a porn addiction. I'm not too naive to think that there's somebody in here that's having a real, real hard time with infidelity. Yet we hide it. There's hurt. There's loss. There's people who struggle with financial problems. All those things we want to hide because we don't want anybody to know that we're messed up. Guess what? You're messed up. I'll break the ice for you. We're all messed up. And it's okay to be messed up because of God's grace and because of Jesus Christ. He, as we'll see here real soon, as we look into the scripture, he didn't come for the perfect. He came for the messed up. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. And we have to get that through our head because I think there's this problem that is created by this idea that when we walk into church, we have to have it all together. And that there are people on the outside that have seen that. There are people that have never been to church but have heard about church. Or people that went to church when they were young and as soon as they got into high school and had the ability to make their own choices, that they backed out of that. And they got out of there because they didn't want to keep up this fake persona. This hypocritical attitude to say that, yeah, I'm this way on Sunday, but the rest of the week I'm screwed up. Many churches, because of that, hypocritical thinking became this place that if you weren't dressed right or you didn't talk right or you didn't know the ins and outs of the church or if you looked like an outsider that's what you were considered and people wouldn't connect with you people didn't want to talk to you people wouldn't want to touch you and the only thing they did is they talked about you and that's a problem that's a problem and it shouldn't be that way you know um tim hawkins i, I already showed you that quick little video um, he has a, a bit about hand sanitizer at the Welcome Center. And if you've ever seen it, it's kind of one of those things that what message are we, what message are we sending? And, you know, I, I could probably act it out for you because I've seen it enough times, but instead I'll let him do it. So, Corey, can you run that for me real fast? There's a lot of hand sanitizer in church. Anybody notice that? I don't know. At my church, they have these two hand sanitizer stations right by the front door greeters. That is not a good message. <laughs> people come in on Sunday. How you doing? Nice to see you all. It's good to see you. Thanks for coming. You're going to love it here. We just love people. You can just be yourself. You can just be yourself. We don't care. We don't judge you. We just love. You sit back and whatever questions you have, you let us know. We'll let you know whatever we can do for you, okay? Y'all newly married? You got four kids? Four kids. That is amazing. God love. We love kids here. Kids are like a little gift from God is what they are. They are just wonderful little creatures that God gives us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where are y'all from? Arkansas? Okay. There's some mints in the basket. Grab a handful, you circus freaks. Go ahead. How true is that? I mean, what message are we sending? What are we... When we have people come in and we say, hey, you know, you're welcome here. We're glad you're here. And then we keep our distance or we, we, we rub down the hand sanitizers. And, uh, you know, it, it's a message that we convey to people even though we don't want to. We want them to come in, but when they do, they only get a little bit of God's grace and then they get slapped in the face with these rules that they're supposed to have followed that they had either no idea about. You know, once again, we've talked about this with the Ten Commandments before, but those rules weren't given 
to non-Christians. They were given to followers of God. They were given to the Israelites after they had followed God, not even so much to keep them in line, but to keep them safe. It was for their benefit. And sometimes we use the Ten Commandments and try and apply them to people who don't believe in God and don't care about God and don't know anything about Him or why they should live that way. And we have to be very careful with that. We need to understand that getting into a relationship with Jesus is like getting into a relationship with anybody else. That it takes time and it builds up to the place where there, there are rules that, yes, we will follow. But it's not about the rules. It's about following Christ and responding in love. Fourteen years ago today, October 23rd, 1997, I walk with my girlfriend into a Phoenix Coyotes hockey game. And uh, about the first break, after the 10-minute mark, there was a message that was supposed to come up on the screen. And that message was to say, Christy, I love you. Will you marry me? Love, Matt. And uh, yeah, I'm that guy that, that proposed at a sporting event. Um, but um, what happened is, is, is I'm sitting there and I had the ring in my pocket and I was just waiting, waiting, waiting. And finally it came. And of course, I was probably sweating and, and freezing all at the same time. It came up on the screen and I saw it just the beginning of it. And I, I gave Christy a little elbow and my, hey, check that out. And she looked up there and she turns and she just goes, very funny. And I went, what? And I looked back up there because it said, Christy, I love you. Will you marry me? Love, Gary. And um, that day, uh, that day was like, okay, well, maybe I'll just wait and see if somebody else had the exact same wording, just a different name. And, there, and so we waited for it, and it scrolled through, and it didn't happen. And, and so I said, well, I was supposed to say Matt, and I pulled out the ring, and, and she cried. And I think part of the reason why she cried is because I did it at a hockey game um, when she'd rather I had done it, you know, someplace romantic. But um, the, uh, the, the whole thing was, is as I knew that our relationship had progressed at that point, I knew that I was going to be with her for the rest of my life. And I knew that through all of that, there were some rules that were going to come. There were rules that were written and unwritten. And some of those rules that we know of is when you put a ring on somebody's finger, you are committed to them for life. That's what it's all about. It's not, it's not like, oh, here, we want to do this for now, and we're going to jump out of this later. It's, it's, this is a commitment for life. The other thing I understood is my job as a man was to provide for her, and I needed to be able to do that. That was a rule I knew I had to follow, and that it was for better or for worse. I knew that. There's going to be times that were good, and there's going to be times that were bad, and you didn't bail out when it, was, when it was bad. Now, since that time, and since those, that relationship, from the beginning, I knew there'd be rules, and I respond to those out of love, just like when you get into a relationship with Christ, you know there's going to be rules, and you have to respond to those in love. Other rules come along. Other rules come along. Let me tell you some of the other rules that have come along that I need to understand, and that I need to do, because it's in response to love. Put the toilet seat down. That is a rule. Don't squeeze the toothpaste from the middle. You squeeze it from the end and squeeze it out. I understand that. Don't walk in the garage with socks on. You know, these are things that I understand, and these are things that have come about. It wasn't like when I proposed to her, she said, okay, by the way, here's a bunch of rules that I want you to follow right away. And, you know, that's what we think about with Jesus. Well, if I get into a relationship with Jesus, I'm going to have to follow all these rules right away and just get right into it. But that's not the case. He wants you to fall in love with him, just like he has fallen in love with you, and respond to him in love with the things that he asks you to do. The church should be the same way. I mean, there's the rules, like I said, the Ten Commandments. Most of us know some of them, if not all of them, but they're, they're very much where we just kind of throw them out. 
okay, yeah, I've got to put God first in my life. I'm not supposed to worship anything else. I'm supposed to not commit adultery. I'm not supposed to lie. I'm not supposed to cheat. I'm not supposed to do anything. All this stuff, and we just considered that, but it, it's more than just rules. You know, it's funny. I got into talking this week. Our, uh, our board of advisors met this week, and we were talking about budget, and we were talking about tithing. And we we're talking about the giving and the things that go with it. And a lot of times, people misunderstand tithing. They think they have to give out of obligation. That, oh, got to give 10% because that's what I've been told forever. And that's how you do it. No, you give out of love. Because God first gave to you, you give in response, and you give cheerfully back to Him. And it doesn't have to be 10%. It's what you feel led to do and how you feel led to give. And, and there's things that we get so confused on because rules have dominated our mindset and the way we think that we think we have to do it this way because the church told us to do it that way. But that's not what God has said. Read His Word. Get into His Word. Understand who He is. Fall in love with Him and respond accordingly. We don't follow rules to be liked by God. We follow rules because we've been changed by God and we want to respond in that way. The funny thing is, is the church has this idea sometimes where these rules have to be followed. And it creates a tension. And the funny thing, like I was saying, is, is that Jesus dealt with the same thing. He was the Messiah. He is God. And he's standing in front of these religious people fighting with them about the way things are supposed to take place. There's so many different stories where he says, no, it's about grace. And they say, no, it's about rules. And they get into this back and forth. And, and Jesus didn't come to debate with them. But it just happened to be that way. And he wins every time. And... Um, the, the idea is, is there are so many different stories. I want to share just a handful of them with you. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be doing a little Bible drill today and flipping between a couple of different stories. If you don't have your Bibles, we're going to have them up here on the screen. The first one's found in actually Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, and it actually can be found in three of the four Gospels. And there's a calling of this guy by the name of Matthew. And Matthew, who is also called Levi, um, was called by Jesus, but he was a tax collector. And tax collectors, as we've talked about before, um, had their own specific uh, category for sinning. Um, there were sinners and tax collectors. They weren't even lumped in with sinners. They, were, they, were, they had their own category. Look what it says here, starting in Luke chapter 5, verse 27. It says, Then Jesus went out to the lakeshore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to come home to, as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. You know, those people that come into church that are the sinners. You know, the air quote, sinners. There were many of these. This is a, a thing that I thought was very, uh, very cool. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. There were many sinners, disreputable sinners and tax collectors. But when the teachers of the religious law, verse 16, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? Why does he eat with such scum? Why is it that the religious think that the sinners are so much worse than them when we're all in the same boat? Jesus heard this, even though they weren't talking to him. Jesus heard this, and he told them, healthy people 
don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. I want you to imagine with me just here for a second in this, in this passage. You take the Pharisees. The Pharisees know the, the Old Testament inside and out. They know, they've memorized a lot of it. They understand the prophecies. And the prophecies that they understand is about this Messiah that is coming. This Messiah that is coming. And um, they also understand the rules. And they've created extra rules to throw into those rules but to raise the standard of how you have to be good enough to get into heaven. How you have to be good enough to be the certain thing. And then this guy, who is the Messiah that they've learned about forever, says, hey, guess what, guys? I didn't come for you. I came for them. I came for the ones that aren't good enough, that can't make it to be good enough, that don't think that they're righteous, that know that they are sinners, that know they have a problem. And these Pharisees know every little bit about this Old Testament, and they're like, wait a second, what? What do you mean you came for them and not for us? What the Messiah who came to, to save, I thought it was supposed to be to save the good people. And Jesus clears that up right away. He said, I came for the people who have nothing and for the most part are worth nothing according to you because you called them scum. Their lives are broken. People who are well don't need Jesus, but people who are broken need the grace that Jesus has to offer. My question is, is what side are we on? Are we on Jesus' side or are we on the Pharisee's side? Where do we fall in the category? It's funny, I was talking with Jerome, and, and he had mentioned uh, that he and Juanita were talking. And uh, in the process of, of them talking, Juanita said, you know, I think we're going to, I think I'll feel um, that we've reached our mission of reaching out to the lost when I don't feel comfortable when it comes to greeting time for those two minutes, I don't feel comfortable leaving my purse sitting on the seat. I said, that's it. That's our barometer. That's the way we check it all out. Is when we don't feel comfortable leaving our stuff behind, yeah, we have the right people in church. Because there's a church culture that gets built up around the good people. And we forget there's the not good people, the sinners that need to be here. And they need to hear about the love and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Our second story can be found in John 8 1. It's also in your bulletins if you... Uh, don't have your Bible with you, and it'll be on the screen as well. And it says this, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back at the temple again. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and talked to them. As he was speaking, the teachers in the religious law and the Pharisees, there they are again, brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses, the rules... Say to stone her, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. So I want you to picture this just for a second. Leave it right there. They kept trying to trap him. They, they bring in this lady. Who knows how they caught a woman in adultery to begin with? Um, that's not something you just generally you know, stumble upon. And uh, generally, if you catch a woman in adultery, there should be Somebody else there too, right? Shouldn't there be, doesn't it take two to tango? Isn't that the, the, the proper phrasing? So, so Jesus knows this is a trap. He's not, he's not dumb. He's God. Uh, and they bring this lady and they, they say, hey, we've got a question for you. Moses says that uh, this lady was caught in adultery. We need to stone her. What do you say? And his response is this. 
starts writing in the dirt with his finger. There's a lot of people that say, oh, yeah, he was writing about those people's sins or he was doing this or doing that. And I don't know. I don't know what he was writing. I don't think it really matters. But I thought it was really funny because then it says here, it says, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. All right, whoever it is, you go ahead and throw the first stone. I think right after that, he turned to the woman and smiled and winked. We got him. You know, but it doesn't say that. You know, John, doesn't, John doesn't record that part. Because then he stooped down and he, and he wrote again in the dust. He started writing it on his finger in the dirt. You know they were thinking to themselves, oh man, we had him and now he has us. He turned the tables on us. How did he do that? But Jesus says, if you want to judge her, you better be without sin. If you want to be the one that throws the first stone, you better be without sin. I'm almost wondering if while he's standing there, he looks at the head Pharisee, he looks at all the teachers of the law and says, how about you? You ready? Got your stone? How about you? Got your rocks? Come on, let's do it. Oh, wait. Oh, you got sin? Oh, that's right, because I'm God and I know your sin. I know all the things you've got going on inside of you. And he's standing there and he's face to face and we see what happens. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, and Jesus is the only one that is allowed to still be there, the only one without sin, says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. You know, Jesus very easily could have come in to this world and hung out with the religious and just blown their mind with his amazing abilities and amazing knowledge of the scriptures. But he came not to debate, not to sit in a church and say, hey, is it Calvinism or Arminianism? Is it the, the tulip or is it non-tulip? And if you don't know those things, don't even worry about it. But there's so many churches that fight about so many stupid, stupid things that really don't matter when it comes right down to the fact that lost people are dying. And that we're saying, we're answering questions that nobody's asking. You know, we got into a discussion about that this week. Talking about, well, should we do a series or should we go through a book of the Bible? Or how should we teach on Sunday mornings? What should we do during connection groups? And both of them are great. But the one thing is we have to reach people where they are. They don't care about... The, the, the Bible history of, of teaching, they want to know how their marriage can get fixed. They want to know how they can break those addictions that they have. They want to know how can God help me get out of where I am to where he wants me to be. And those are the questions we need to answer. Those are the questions we need to come to. So as we look through these, we see these, we understand that there's Pharisees who came to Jesus wanting knowledge. And there was a woman coming to Jesus wanting salvation. Which category do we fall into? Our third story can be found in Luke 15, 1. It says, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law, once again our friends, complain that he was associating with such sinful people and even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? 
Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go and search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over the one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over the 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. What Jesus is telling them here is, if there's somebody who's lost, I'm going after them. That is what I'm doing. I'm going to go after the ones that are lost. It's funny because in that same, uh, same time where he's talking there in Luke 15, he goes on to talk about the lost coin, and he also talks about the prodigal son, and maybe you've heard that story before. But one of the things I think we miss about the prodigal son who goes off, spends all of his father's wealth, realizes he's trash and, and nothing and doesn't have anything left and wants to come back and be a servant of his father's just, just so he has something to eat. Um, he comes back and his dad instead runs out to him, meets him, wraps his arms around him and wants to throw a party for him. Well, the whole time there was a brother that was at home following the rules and gets mad that his brother came home. Gets mad that his brother came back from where he was at. These Pharisees are mad that there are people that are sinners that have lived lives that, that don't have a good past. But he wants to see their lives changed. He wants to offer them the grace and mercy that nobody else is offering them. The Pharisees say, hey, you know what? We've worked hard our whole lives to get where we're at. You can't just offer this salvation to anybody. But they've missed it. They've missed the point. The last passage I want to look at is Luke 8, 1. Luke 8, 1 and 2. And it's about a lady. Her name's Mary Magdalene. You've probably heard that name a time or two before. But it says that soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with him along with some women. Now, we have to remember this is not a women culture. This is not a culture where women were invited to do anything. They weren't thought of as much. But he had women that were along for the ride. And that goes back to what we talked about. When he invites anyone, he invites anyone. And these women weren't just any women. It says, along with him were some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them was Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out how many demons? Seven. You think you've got problems? You think you've got some hidden issues? Seven demons. Mary Magdalene had seven demons inside of her. She was a mess. And when Christ shows up on the scene, he could have very easily said, you know what, you have too many problems for me to deal with. I'm going to deal with the people who have just, just small problems, just some minor issues, because I can fix them. I can't fix seven demons. But instead, Jesus says, you know what, I can't help you. I can take you just as you are, and I can change you into who I want you to be. And not only that, but I'm going to change you, and then I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you for my glory. Because guess what? If you really look at it, he could have said, hey, we're going to heal you, but I need you to stay here and hang out here because um, you, uh, you have a reputation. Uh, these demons are your reputation. We don't need you to come along. I mean, our, the 12 guys with me, I've changed them. They're pretty holy. And when we go to the disciple convention, you probably shouldn't be there because that might throw people off and might make people talk about us behind our back or whatever it is. But instead, he takes her 
and he uses her and he brings her along and God's grace is poured out on her and she is used into the inner circle. And the crazy thing is, is if you look at Matthew, Mark, and John, in the record of the death, the burial, and the resurrection, only one person is at all three, or at least is recorded at all three. You know who that is? Mary Magdalene. You know who the very first person to see Jesus on Easter morning when he arose from the grave was? Mary Magdalene. I don't think it was coincidence that the Pharisees weren't standing there when he showed up. I think that God knew exactly what he was doing and used Jesus exactly in a way to say, I am going to take the broken and I am going to fix them and I'm going to pour grace on them and they will be changed and they'll become more like me and they will follow me and they'll respond in following me to the things I've asked them to do in love, not out of obligation. Jesus had some pretty amazing ministry and dealt with some pretty amazing people. I'm sure you've heard about Zacchaeus before as well. Zacchaeus, when he met Jesus, he invited him to his house. He was changed there on the spot and said, Jesus, not because Jesus asked him to, not because Jesus said, you have to do this if you want to be a follower of mine, but Zacchaeus went and said, you know what, I'm going to give back four times the amount that I've stolen from people, and I'm going to give half my wealth to the poor in response to what Jesus said. And in Jesus' response to that was, I haven't come into the world for the healthy, but I've come to seek and save that which is lost. I've come to seek and save that which is lost. His followers understand that. His fans do not. His followers know why he came, and his followers know that when we're following him, there's going to be times where we have to follow him into a den of sinners. We're going to invite sinners in and be a part. That's what his followers understand. Fans do not. Fans are scared by that. Can you imagine how many people probably would, if Mary Magdalene were alive today, and she were to walk into this church or any church, how she'd be responded to if they knew her past? Oh, that's that demon-possessed woman. She had seven demons in her. How would they respond? How should we respond? That's the thing I want you to think about today. The great thing is, is that Jesus' love, it goes on and on. We can't do anything to lose it. All we have to do is accept it. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you for who you are and what you've done in our lives. We thank you that you have opened up our eyes and taken the scales off so we could see you. Help us to not make our lives about rules that have to be followed, but Lord, instead about following you. And in following you, respond accordingly. Help us to understand there's people out there that are hurting. There's people out there that are broken. There's people inside this room that are hurting. There's people inside this room that are broken that are struggling with areas. And Lord, we keep them hidden inside as if that's going to help solve the problem. Instead, we need to be open and let people know that we're hurting. Let people know so they can hold us accountable and they can help us through these problems. Not to be judged, not to be gossiped about, but to be helped with your grace. Because Lord, you poured it out on me and you poured it out on each and every one of us that have accepted you as your Savior when we are in a situation, when we are in a place in our lives that we were not worth anything, that we were just scum. 
But because of you, because of your blood, because of your life and your death and your resurrection, we have been changed. Help us to share that message with the world. We pray it all in your name this morning, Lord. Amen.